We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Uh, We are here to honor the life and legacy of the recently deceased legendary writer and teacher, international master, I am Jeremy Selman. He passed away in September of 2023 after uh, uh, a a long health decline from health issues related to a stroke. You will hear I am John Donaldson, his friend, discuss those health issues uh, within this interview, um, obviously, International Master Soman leaves a tremendous legacy behind so much brilliant writing. He helped so many people get better at chess. I feel like he was the patron saint of club players in particular. He really um, understood common thought patterns of players of all levels and taught chess in such an accessible way, which is why, of course, his books are incredibly popular. Um so it's a really nice conversation with I am Cyrus Lakdawalla and John Donaldson highlighting everything from his life to his career. Of course, uh, I am Selman is legendary for books like How to Reassess Your Chess, Selman's Complete Endgame Course, and The Amateur's Mind, which I recently reviewed on the Chess Books Recaptured podcast review series. But it was also interesting to hear John discuss Selman's great success with The Great Courses, uh, chess course that he did. It made me want to go and buy that and watch it, even though I'm not 
necessarily the target audience uh, for that, but it's one of the few ways to actually see Selman's teaching in action. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, for listeners who did not hear the announcement on the Amateur's Mind uh, book review, um, so I am Jeremy Selman, did not do that many interviews that are still able to be heard, but he was interviewed twice by friend of the pod, Fred Wilson of Fred Wilson Books in New York City for a chess radio show that Fred was doing in the mid 2000s for the Internet Chess Club. And Fred graciously has uh, given those to me to share with the chess playing populace. So I'll be editing those and posting them to the Perpetual Chess YouTube channel. They're audio only and the sound is a little grainy, but it's totally understandable. And there's so much to learn from hearing Silman discuss his own life, but also his approach to writing books and his thoughts about how to present chess material. So again, those will be going up on the Perpetual Chess YouTube channel by the end of 2023. I'm not exactly sure which day I'll get them up there, but uh, several hours worth of uh, very insightful and enjoyable interviews with I Am Jeremy Silman that you guys can check out. But there's also just lots to enjoy and appreciate from John Donaldson and Cyrus Lakdawalla sharing I Am Soman's story. Uh, so I am going to present this to you uninterrupted. It's 100 minutes of basically two friends reminiscing about their their good friend, I Am Jeremy Soman. I greatly enjoyed learning more about this legendary author. I will continue to be digging into uh, all of the wonderful writing he's left behind on his chess.com columns, which of course are available for free uh, in his books. I still need to read a couple of his books. And of course, now his his books uh, are also making their way to Chessable, which is fantastic for the newer generation. So, so much that we can still learn from I am Jeremy Selman, even though he is departed. So may he rest in peace. And I hope you all uh, enjoy this conversation. Here it is. And we are here with two friends of the pod and more importantly, friends of I am Jeremy Selman, John Donaldson, of course, award-winning historian and trainer who uh, has known uh, Jeremy Selman for decades, uh, collaborated with him on books, had his most recent excellent book, Bobby Fischer and His World, published by I Am Jeremy Selman, and I'm excited to hear John's reflections. John, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And we are also here by fellow member of I Am Jeremy Soman's posse and fellow friend of the pod, the popular and prolific San Diego-based author, I Am Cyrus Lakdawalla. Welcome, Cyrus. Thanks for having me, Ben. Sure. And so I Am Jeremy Soman, he had such a profound legacy. I've been reading not only the published obits about him, but just various comments, like the comments in the chess.com obit that Tarje Svensson wrote. And it's amazing how many people's lives he touched and how seen amateur chess players felt. And I never knew the man, but that's how I felt as well. So it's I'm really looking forward to hearing um, the perspective of people who are actually dear friends of his. Um, but I think it might make sense to start at the beginning of when you guys met him. Um, so, John, what, we'll start with you. What was your what is your first recollection of meeting I am Jeremy Selman? Well, I uh, I know the exact day I met him, and I know that just because it was at a tournament, and I was able to look up the uh, the dates for it. And uh, the first day our paths crossed was uh, April eighteenth of 1981. Uh, it was a tournament, the April Showers tournament, directed by the late Alan Benson at the uh, Berkeley Student Union Building. And uh, uh, my first impression of Jeremy was that uh, uh, he was a hippie. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, yes, the year was 1981. We're not talking the late 1960s, but uh, the 60s lasted into the 80s in Berkeley and in San Francisco. And uh, and Jeremy was living in San Francisco at the time. And so when the tournament finished, he invited me to uh, come over and see him at his uh, place. He lived on uh, Schrader Street between the... Uh, Panhandle and uh, Haight Street, for those of you that know San Francisco, just a few blocks from uh, Golden Gate Park. And it was in a little, uh, like a little garret, if you will. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was already uh, a senior master, but, uh, uh, you know, chess was not uh, a lucrative pastime, shall we say, it's particularly in, in, in those years for him. And so it was a very modest little place. He had very little furniture. He, uh, to sort of describe him, he had hair that was was almost all the way down to the to his uh, rump, and he uh, had a beard, and he was wearing a flowing robe. I think it was like an African. I don't know if you pronounce if I'm pronouncing it right a dishdasha. Uh, so he seemed very much of uh, of, of of a time, and uh, <laughs> we bonded over our common uh, love of the accelerated dragon. You know, if we had been sensible people, it would have been like the Knight or Sicilian, and you know, no doubt we would have been a hundred points stronger later in life. But uh, but it was the Accelerated Dragon that, that that caught our fancy, and so I remember analyzing with him on the floor of his little garret in San Francisco, and then uh, heading back to the Northwest. Amazing, and obviously you guys left quite a legacy in the Accelerated Dragon with the books you wrote that I was a um, avid student of, as I've told you before, John. Um, but before we pick up the story, uh, Cyrus, what was your first interaction with I Am Soman? Um, first, I just want to say that Accelerated Dragon is kind of like playing the London with the black side. I mean, <laughs> <that's>, you know. <laughs> So uh, John and I are in the same gene pool, you know, and, and Jeremy, <laughs> stylistic gene pool. Anyway, uh, I met Jeremy, uh, I think, three months after John did in 1981. I think it was uh, around July, it may have been June, July of 1981. And uh, we met through a mutual friend, Chuck Johnson. He came to the San Diego Chess Club on... Um, I don't know if it was on Wednesday night or Thursday night at that time, but um, he uh, Chuck introduced me as the you know highest rated player in San Diego, and uh, I'd heard of Jeremy. I'd seen his books uh, with, in fact, co-authored with John, um, and he immediately challenged me to a blitz match, um, and uh, I. I beat him 5-3, and then he immediately challenged me to a rematch the next day, uh, and he beat me 5-3. You know? <laughs> so, um, we went to Chuck Johnson's apartment, and he was um, he was essentially like a, a a hippie out of place, you know, like a, like out of his time. He he did. I mean, he he was uh, looking exactly as John had described him. Although he wasn't wearing the African robe, but he was wearing like some kind of paj like white uh, pajama outfit. <laughs> like it looked like a narrow jacket and white pajamas or something. You know, like something right out of nineteen sixty nine to seventy one. You know, <laughs> and. 
Both of you don't strike me as people who wore African robes. Is that a fair assessment? <laughs> no. Well, no. one thing I should also <laughs> add about Jeremy is that although he was, uh, you know, you know, in, in his musical tastes and uh, his love of the counterculture, he was uh, a hippie. He was, you know, in a certain sense, he was uh, he was not a drug user, which, you know, a lot of people sort of think of the two, you know, uh, uh, going hand in hand and uh it's a funny thing. When I think back to Jeremy, I can never recall him ever. Uh, he would drink uh, like very rarely, like in social occasions. But uh, compared to his contemporaries from that time, you know, I can never recall him like. And I, I checked this with Paul Whitehead, who uh, is the director. He's like the, the chess coordinator at the Mechanics. And uh, Jeremy was kind of a, a big brother for him in the mid 70s in San Francisco. And uh, he can't remember Jeremy ever using drugs. You know, I mean, I mean, maybe possibly he, you know, like many of his contemporaries, he did a little bit of uh, uh, spiritual uh, usage of uh, LSD. But uh, uh, but I never saw him ever, which is really kind of rare for that time period. So hippie, yes, but not completely a hippie. Oh, really? Because he wrote and I, you know, I've been digging into his columns, which are such a treasure trove, his old columns on chess.com. And he he wrote about, quote, being sidetracked by the rip roaring life in Hay-Asbury when he moved to San Francisco. So, right. But I think he's talking more about the music and and, uh, uh, you know, other aspects of uh, of the life there. I remember that one thing that Paul Whitehead mentioned when uh, Jeremy, uh, uh, he used to you know, as a high school student, uh, visit uh, uh, Jeremy's uh, 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 apartment, which was in another location in the Haight at the time. And he, uh, it was like around 75 or so. And, and uh, the first time he, he, he stumbled into Jeremy's little warren, it was like White Punks on Dope by The Tubes, <laughs> uh, which was a San Francisco band. Uh, but but again, yeah, it's, it's one of those, Jeremy was full of like paradoxes. And one of them is that he... You might have gotten this impression that he was, you know, uh, uh, a consumer of, uh, of uh, pharmaceuticals, but but nothing of the kind. And uh, uh, he also was very, uh, very health conscious in the sense of like what he ate. He was uh, for many stages of his life, he was a vegetarian. Oh, OK. Um, but so maybe some. Some sex and rock and roll, but not so much uh, the drugs, at least compared to, as you say, his... Uh, I'm nodding my head, Ben. <laughs> to his uh, hippie contemporaries. But, yes. But Cyrus, you did in a beautiful uh, little post that you wrote uh, around the time that he passed, you did mention that he was he was homeless for a period. This is was what he told prior? me. Yeah, he said he was homeless and he actually told me he was a heroin addict, but John no, said he was messing with me. Yeah, he was definitely, he definitely was. Jeremy was deadly afraid of needles. And uh, uh, and when I say Jeremy was homeless, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is, is that in the time when he was an active tournament player, which was principally in the 70s, 80s and early 90s, he, uh, during that uh, that phase, especially I would say in the 70s and maybe to about 87 or so when he first met his wife, Gwen Feldman, and then his life changed quite dramatically. Uh, before that, 
he, you know, when he was depending on prize money from tournaments to uh, pay the rent, then it was kind of, you know, uh, uh, well, catch as catch can, you know. Right. You have a good result in the last, and in, in the last round of the tournament, you win a prize and you pay the rent, or you uh, you're surfing on somebody's couch for a couple weeks. Okay, so so not no home, but maybe not sleeping on the streets. Right. No, maybe, Jeremy, okay, maybe like that. You know, yeah. Jeremy was never like a lover of the outdoors. You know, <laughs> you know, high, even getting Jeremy to go for like a hike was like pulling teeth. <laughs> okay. He told me okay. in 1987, he was extremely health conscious. I, I think it was at the uh, American Open. I'm not sure if it was 87, but right around there. Um, it was in Los Angeles, I remember. Um, anyway, he told me uh, the reason he went vegetarian was uh, it's a lot, you know, like he uh, he needs two pounds of food, he told me, per meal. And he said it's much better to eat two pounds of salad than two pounds of chicken. That's a, that, that was his exact quote. I never forgot that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Although having said all this, he was a lover of pies. And like the late Jack, <laughs> uh, I should say, Jer the late Jeremy and 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 the living uh, Jack Peters, those two guys, pumpkin pie, apple pie, they could <laughs> eat a whole pie and and do it in a graceful and stealthful fashion in which you never knew the pie. You saw it and then it was gone and you didn't see where it went. Yeah, uh, you mentioned I am Jack Peters. So in the column I referenced about his chess posse, uh, he mentions Jim Tarzan, Grandmaster Jim Tarzan, Grandmaster Yasser Sarawan, I am Jack Peters. I am Anthony Sadie. I am John Watson, and yourselves, uh, John, John, and Cyrus. Um, so, um, I mean, there's there's so much to think about in terms of how the chess world changed. So you mentioned John, him living kind of tournament to tournament, uh, hoping to, um, you know, hoping to win enough money to uh, to pay for a hotel at the next tournament. I, I love those stories. And when did the chess writing start to sort of, I mean, obviously we'll get to his sort of landmark success, but when did the chess writing start to take hold? And do, do you remember a moment where you realized like this guy is very talented? Oh, well, maybe I should backtrack just for a second to say how Jeremy got his start in chess. Sure. Uh, okay. And he started playing in 1966. There's an interview, a inter two interviews, in fact, that Fred Wilson did with uh, Jeremy in the uh, early uh, 2000s. And he, he in there, Jeremy mentions uh, that in 1966 in San Diego, he got his start. And uh, Jeremy, I looked up his first rating was in 1968. It was uh, 1142. It was provisional. And uh, so keep that figure in mind. He started playing in 66, 68, he's 1142. He didn't become an a expert until about 1972 or so. So it took him a while. But then he kind of got stuck. He he graduated from high school in the early 70s. And then there was a brief stint in the uh, U.S. Army. He was stationed at uh, uh, Fort Ord in Monterey, California. And then from there, he went uh, to uh, San Francisco. And I should mention that uh, when Jeremy was in high school, he, there were a couple big tournaments that were held in Utah of all places. You wouldn't expect them to uh, uh, have like big uh, open tournaments, but there was like the days of uh, 1849 and there was a Provo Open. And in those tournaments, players like Walter Brown played. So they were, they were quite, you know, you know, $1,000 first place at the time was enough to really get folks to show up. And Jeremy ended up uh, driving some of those people 
uh, uh, back to California. And one of them was uh, Dennis Waterman, uh, uh, better known maybe as a famous poker player. I was going to say. He was, uh, he <laughs> yeah. was a U.S. senior master. And uh, uh, he told uh, Jeremy that if he ever needed a place to stay, uh, you know, come to San Francisco and look him up. And so the the it must have been like the fall of like 1973. Jeremy, uh, you know, packed his bags and headed to uh, to San Francisco, and he uh, met up with Dennis. And uh, mm. Dennis showed him a, a corner of his living room where there was a place to put his sleeping bag, and and uh, he put it down and he went to sleep. And the next morning he woke up, and he saw he wasn't the only person in the living room. There was somebody at the other end that was sleeping in a sleeping bag, and he looked at the person. And he looked at me and said, I know this person. And I know him. But it was early in the morning and Jeremy was not an early morning riser. And he looked and he looked and he thought and he thought. And then he realized where he saw that person. It was on the cover of Chess Life magazine. It was John Grief. He had just won the U.S. championship with uh, Lubash Kalek. And Jeremy ruthfully uh, mentioned to me afterwards, he said, here's the guy. He's the U.S. champion and he's sleeping on the floor. Chess is not going to be my my way to riches, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so Jeremy, uh, you know, from that period on, he was primarily based in the Bay Area uh, until the early eighties. He he did uh, live in England for a period of time and in Chicago in the late seventies, uh, and and some of those games can be seen in his book, uh, 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 A Chess Odyssey, his last book, particularly his. Uh, he played a lot in England against players who would become very well known, like John Nunn and uh, Jonathan Spielman and uh, Danny King and, and a whole whole troop of, of folks that uh, that he ran into there. But in the early 80s, about 82 or so or 83, he moved to Eugene, Oregon. And just before he had left San Francisco, he started writing for Chess Digest. And this was the late Ken Smith's uh, uh, publishing house. And there were small pamphlets on openings. And um, he had uh, co-authored, I think, a, a work with uh, John Grief on the uh, uh, center counter. Uh, and then while he was living in Eugene, there were, you know, there were few opportunities to teach, very few tournaments. He, he really started writing a lot more. And so he wrote a, a number of pamphlets on the Nimzo Indian, Accelerated Dragon, French Defense. But it was really only when he... Uh, you know, move north to Seattle, and that would have been in like, oh, about late '84, that he uh, uh, got the idea for a book, and the book was "Reassess Your Chess," and, uh, you know, I'm not sure how you know Jeremy had done uh, some teaching before that, but these are the days, of course, before there were you know computers, and there were no databases. There was a uh, a rather limited amount of uh, high-quality chess books in English language. And so a lot of, you know, Jeremy's uh, books mm. reflected original analysis, particularly on the Accelerated Dragon. And uh, he also uh, started to develop what he called his theory of imbalances. And so there was a, a fellow in Seattle, uh, Stephen Christopher. He was a, a kind of a patron saint of, uh, of chess in the Northwest. And he offered to Jeremy to uh, to help to get his 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 book published, and the 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 person that actually did the you know the distribution for the book was uh, the late Bob Long, and 
the book uh, really seemed to strike a chord. You know, you know, there's a lot of books written for at least at that time for beginning players, and there were a lot of books written for uh, more advanced players, say over 2,000. But for the the you know the great number of what I would call for want of a better term, club players, say, maybe about 1,400 to about 2,000. And and realizing that when I use that rating range, there'll be some players a little bit below that, and there'll be some players above that, that the book will speak to. But it really, he had this way of like, just interacting with the reader that really made them feel that he was speaking directly to them. And uh, he also, when discussing, you know, you know, more advanced topics, he had a way of always interjecting some humor into it that kind of kept it, you know, like you weren't just like, you know, falling asleep, if you will. And uh, that book did very well. And, and within a, a year or two, uh, there was a, a second printing of it with Long. And I remember that uh, it was a funny story about that book. Uh, Long uh, decided to invest in some sort of uh, uh, uh printing uh, method that would quickly become obsolete to desktop publishing and computers. And he put a lot of money into it. And so uh, within like about six months, Bob Long, who, who managed to survive as like a professional in the chess business for, for decades, uh, he, he had one of his uh, low periods where he just, you know, just was struggling to get by. And so he had to sell uh, all the books he, he couldn't give Jeremy a royalty statement, so he sent all the books to Jeremy that he had published, or, or a large quantity of them. And then Jeremy, like, gave, you know, sold them at local tournaments and simuls. And and then, like, six months later, Long was back in Solvent, and he's like, I need those books back. <laughs> they were all gone. Jeremy had sold them all. And then the rights, uh, uh, the next edition was published by uh, Dodd Darren, and then finally uh, by uh, Silman James Press and... Uh, 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 Gwen Silman, uh, Gwen Feldman, I should say, and she published all these books that were really, uh, you know, reassess your chess, amateur's mind. And my favorite book by far of Jeremy's is this book. Yeah, I figured that's what you were going for. Yes, and so it's the book, Benko biography. It, for, yes, for and it, it checks all the boxes. It's a wonderful book to read. It's beautifully uh, bound. It's hardbound book, and it's. Very nice dust jacket, great photos in it. It's also, it's heavy enough that you can do curls with it right. if you want a little exercise. It works as a great doorstop. It, it checks all the boxes. Yeah. So I have a few things to pick up on, John. Number one, the aforementioned interviews with Fred Wilson. Fred has been gracious enough to give me permission to share them with the world. So around the time this interview comes out, I'll be posting them to the YouTube channel. Uh, obviously, there's there's no video. The sound is a bit grainy, but it's two wonderful, distinctly Jeremy Soman interviews. Um, and to pick up on something you said, one in one of the interviews with Fred, uh, he said, um, a lot of people call 2000, he was talking about elitism in chess, and he said a lot of people call people rated 2000 plus the real players in chess, but that's the problem in the chess world. The 1000 players are the real players. And that really struck a chord that, um, because that comes across in his writing, this mm -hmm. empathy and understanding of, of uh, you know, non-professional chess players. What do you think, where do you guys think that came from? Cyrus, do you want to start sure. first, or do you want me to? Um, well, 
I don't know where it came from, but he was, you know, he was a business savvy guy. And uh, he knew that that was like a niche in the market that wasn't hit. Um, that uh, Reassess Your Chess, um, he sent me a copy, okay? And uh, I read it because I thought, you know, this will help some of my beginning students. So I read it and I was, um, I was stuck just over 2,500 at, at like USCF 2,500 for like, uh, you know, five years. I, and I thought this was it. I, I reached my, my prime. And as soon as I read reassess your chess with, uh, something with the imbalances clicked, it's like, I, I had, Weirdly enough, I'd never thought of that. Like if you, you know, if you have the bishop pair, open the position, right? I mean, right. <clears throat> if you have the bishop pair, don't let a knight swap off for one of the bishops unless you get something for it. But my rating uh, shot up to like, I think it was 2597 or 2598. I forgot. Like, but my, my peak rating and it shot up within months you know, like within months. And I hadn't read, like, I, it, this was a much later edition, too. The, I read it in 1993. I didn't read the original. It was like a, he sent it to me in 93. Um, but, uh, like, I, I, I attribute the book. And it there was something, it, it, it was like, um, you know how uh, in chemistry, just, you something is a gel and you touch it and all of a sudden it's liquid. It was like that. It was just like instantaneous. I jumped almost a hundred points at a point where I thought I would not go past that. Like I, I thought I was at my, uh, my, my peak at, at low 2500s. Um, and it was the book. And so it, it works for higher rated players. It's not a beginner's book. I yeah. mean, it, it is, but it isn't, you know, like, uh, it, but there's something magical in that book. I, I, um, I love the Benko book, but I really think reassess is the greatest chess book ever written. Maybe because I'm biased because it affected my chess so much. One thing I should mention is that, uh, there were four editions of reassess your chess. And, uh, one thing that's very odd is the four books are all different. Right. <laughs> they have the same title, but they're all different right. books. Uh, so uh, it has to do with the fact that Jeremy always thought he could do it much better. And he really was, uh, you know, uh, you're probably right, Cyrus, that he, he realized from his teaching that, that he could fill a niche in the chess ecosystem and this could possibly produce some income. But I think uh, uh, also to the point is that he really... Uh, always wanted to make the books as good as he possibly could. And even if it took him extra time to do it, he's very much a perfectionist in that sense. So, yeah, I'd like to pick up that thread because of course, as you mentioned, his wife, ultimately future wife, <laughs> ultimately collaborated with him on publishing. And obviously that made a big difference. And he, he mentioned in the interview with, with Fred uh, that he valued the creative control and obviously um, ultimately made a big um economic difference as well. But before we get to that, I in reading the New York Times obit, which uh, Dylan Loeb McLean did an, a nice job on, I was having, so they go through the sales of uh, his books and uh, the bestseller that they list was the complete book, uh, the complete book of chess strategy. I'm 
And and that one I feel like doesn't get mentioned as much these days. John, did that become something else, or was that? Uh, no, no, no. That that book, uh, you know, Jeremy was not particularly uh, proud of that book. Okay, <clears throat> I mean, he didn't. You know, he 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 did what was possible for it, but it just didn't strike. I mean, when I say proud, that's probably the wrong term to use. Probably the one is it just it it was it didn't occupy the the number one position in in his in his heart. In far as his chess writing went, you know, the the uh, uh, reassess or amateur's mind or or the Benko book probably would have done that or his Endgame book for that matter, but that book uh, it really sold well, particularly during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people that uh, were watching Queen's Gambit who wanted something that was that would kind of just sort of fill in a little bit of sort of uh, chess culture for them in a in a, a very digestible format, they uh, they they grabbed onto that book, and so Jeremy was kind of shocked and and uh, that 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 it sold as well as it did. Uh, but I would think that you know <clears throat> the only the only sales records that Gwen and Jeremy have uh, for his books are after she started publishing them, of course. And I should mention that uh, Gwen Feldman. Uh, you know, her she's a professional in the publishing industry, and and Jeremy's chess books were like a very small part of that. You know, she published like hundreds of books on uh, on uh, Hollywood, on filmmaking, and all various aspects of it, uh, and you know, writing. Uh, so, uh, but all total, you know, the average chess book, if it sells like two thousand copies. It's done extremely well. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have to realize like, you know, even with, uh, now I, I should <laughs> paraphrase that and say, now that we have chessable, now that we have, you know, eBooks, uh, it's a little more complicated because, you know, you, you know, if, if you're looking at like writing a book, you know, you've got all these sort of like side gigs going along with it that can generate income. But if you're just looking at like, uh, actual physical books that are published, uh, you know, a lot of the major publishers sometimes they'll only publish books in editions of like a thousand, and then they'll reprint them if they they do well after that. And uh, you know, it used to be the old model was like two thirds of all books that are published in English sell in North America, and one third would sell in Europe and you know various other places in the world. I don't know if that model still holds true, but it's it's you know it's it's. It's tricky also because uh, shipping now for physical books is so expensive. I mean, because of the pandemic, incredibly yeah. expensive. That is outside of the United <clears throat> States. Inside mm -hmm. of the U.S., it's still you know quite reasonable. Uh, so, you know, you know, you're looking at Jeremy's books, and and one can say quite confidently that he sold over half a million books. Yeah, and so his life is really divided in two between. Uh, I would say like late 80s. So he was born in uh, 1954 in Del Rio, Texas. Uh, only lived there a short time. Uh, he was a member of a military family that traveled often. But he, uh, if you divide his life, he died at the age of 69. It's sort of like half his life was spent in poverty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes very happy poverty, uh, but uh, you know, in the sense that you know, he he had enough. He always had enough money to get by, but he he, he was struggling. And then the other half, he was doing extremely well, and uh, 
and and that's because he his his book <clears throat> article his books just took off in the in the from the nineties onwards, and you know, you know, has, and it, it you know it, it changed things. He 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 was able to do things that he wanted to do. Like he and his wife uh, bought a home in Japan. That was always his dream. And they, they lived there several, you know, they would live there like half the time and half the time in Los Angeles. That's something he always really, really wanted to do. He loved Japan and Japanese culture. And they were able to make a lot of trips to places like India and all over Southeast Asia and Europe. So, you know, things that he really hadn't been able to do too much. Uh, when he was younger, he was able to enjoy. So that that was nice to see because, you know, he died. I consider sixty nine, you know, relatively young age. Can I yeah. say something about uh, the number of books sold? Um, I, that's a number that's never going to be beaten. You know, I mean, yeah. never because uh, right now it's a different era. You know, it's a different era because uh, this was a pr like uh, he wrote uh, reassess in the pre internet age. So uh, there was no uh, downloading, you know, of the PDF of his books, you see. That makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, like, I don't know the number. Uh, like, I, I have like a just like an army of fans and sell this tiny drop of books, you know. And it's right. because like people, you know, like uh, India – Asia, Africa, they're not going to pay 30 bucks for a book. They can't. It's a different economy, right? It's like, you know, uh, so it's it's a completely different era where um, right now we're selling just a fraction of uh, the pre-internet days. And also it's just there's a saturation. Uh, like, like John said, there's chessable, there's, you know, there's YouTube videos that are free, right? Like yeah. you, you can just I, I can pick any subject. I, I want Morphe's games. Okay, I could watch YouTube videos for a month on Morphe's games, right? Just one video after another, and it's free. And also, it's, the culture has changed. Like reading is hard work, and uh, the 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 younger the younger chess players don't read. I mean, that's like exhausting for them to read one sentence, right? So they, they like videos. Like they, they like when the book is on TV, they'll watch it, you know? So it's a, it's just a different world than it was back then. I, I don't, I just think his record, it's not even going to be close. I, I don't think it can be close anymore. You know, I mean, like uh, if, if you sell like, um, you know, 5,000 books or like John said, 2,000 books. That's a, that's a big, that's a big book. Like my first book, um, has sold like, a, like close to 10,000 copies that play the London system. Okay. Well, that's like a tiny fraction of, of Jeremy, yeah. right? It's a, it's a right. tiny, tiny fraction, you know? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. I should mention also that uh, it wasn't just books that uh, Jeremy wrote. I mean, uh, <clears throat> he also did a series for the great courses. Right, right. And I remember that he uh, uh, he put a lot of energy into that. And uh, he, you know, they... Uh, I joked with him. I called him like it was this Kevin Costner era because they they <laughs> they, uh, they they dolled him up and they cut his hair and they, they, they dressed him up in a suit and everything. And he bore a certain resemblance to Kevin Costner. I wouldn't call him doppelgangers, but uh, <laughs> but the point was, Jeremy. This was very much un-Jeremy, and he was like mortified and horrified. But he did it, and he did a very good job. And the thing, just like he was just stunned you know he just thought he was going to get the initial money at the beginning of the project and you know there wouldn't be any royalties but then he was getting these checks you know ten twenty thousand dollars uh you know a quarter and uh so the thing sold over a hundred thousand copies uh and it's also very nice that he did this because unfortunately uh jeremy was a really good uh lecturer and anybody that uh was at a u.s championship or at an american open had a chance to see his uh, skills in in action, uh, and and it really depended also very much on what sort of audience it was. Jeremy was very flexible in the way he could deliver his message, and so if there was a uh, a mixed audience, uh, you'd get one uh, type of lecture. If there was uh, only adults, well, you might get a little spicier version <laughs> of the same lecture. Uh, but he was always uh, uh, entertaining, but he always made sure to deliver a lot of instructional content, things that people could remember and that could take home with them. <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, uh, the last U.S. championships that he lectured on were the, was, I think, you know, in Seattle and San Diego. Those were in the early 2000s, maybe up to like 2000. Four, right. San Diego and was so, 2004. Right. Right. So the, uh, you know, what this meant essentially is that, you know, that he just missed out on like the uh, the YouTube era, if you will. And uh, to my knowledge, there are very few uh, uh, recordings of Jeremy speaking. So these two, that's one of the reasons why these interviews with Fred are very important. Uh, uh, so people have kind of Unfortunately, with, 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 with the exception of the great chess courses, they don't really get a chance to, uh, to hear how funny and entertaining and, and funny he was to uh, uh, lecture. Uh, yeah, he was, he was really, really, really skilled in this, in this area. And that was just one more example of how his, uh, his uh, chess, uh, you know, work, you know, his, his body of work, his his books and uh, also these great chess courses, you know, uh, 
kept him in, in, in style in his later years. Shoot, I just realized something. I made a double question mark. He, he offered that to me, and I said, nah, it doesn't sound great. But he didn't say anything about ten or 20000 per quarter. He didn't say one word yeah, about no. that. You know, like no. I, would have, I would have taken just it. Just a rounding error for Jeremy. Just a rounding error. <laughs> it, it just didn't sound appealing. I, I know he hated it. He told me he couldn't well, stand it, you know. Well, you know, it, I'm sure, you know, they treat him, he went to Washington, D.C., where they did the recordings and everything. And I think that, uh, I mean, they did it very professionally and, 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 it, and it was probably for the good of the courses. But, but yes, it was not a typical day for, for, for Jeremy. No, he hated yeah. it. He, he didn't like being handled, you know, he, he, <laughs> yeah. he didn't like yeah, yeah. someone telling him what, like, uh, I, I remember he said something like, uh, they kept bugging him about the chess grammar, uh, you know, like if he if he said better is queen h five, uh, they would say, oh no, that that's incorrect grammar. You can't start a sentence with better is. You have to <laughs> use the full correct grammatic, you know, grammatically correct way. And it was, he went, that's not how chess works. But they didn't, you know, they they wanted to control every aspect of it. And I I uh -huh. know he was really like frustrated with it. He didn't want to do it. I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I haven't seen that series, but I have heard great things um, among the many tributes. In addition to people highlighting his books uh, when he passed, I, I saw several commenters saying, you know, that's his that series is what got me into chess, that great courses series. Um, so with this landmark financial success, um, you guys, John, you mentioned uh, that it, it kind of cut his life in half in terms of like his quality of life and the way he lived. Did it, did it change his personality at all? Not at all. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Jeremy, uh, always, if I, I, I think I said in, in one interview, they asked me to describe him and I said, I could do it in, uh, uh, in two words, never boring. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, it's true because I mean, he had this endless, he was full <clears> of life. <throat> he always had different passions. I remember once, uh, you can see it in Chess Odyssey how he uh, he ran across the games of Damiano, and I think most of us our knowledge of Damiano is you know e4 e5 knight f3 f6 you know <laughs> the Damiano defense that's about all we know about Damiano. But Jeremy like ran across a bunch of his games and he said this guy could really play. He made great combinations, you know, and uh, uh, this would be sort of typical of him. He would find like some sort of. Uh, 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 new passion and uh, it extended to uh, you know like Asian films he'd be watching some he'd find some new director and he would want to turn you on to that or uh, you know I remember like uh, uh, long ago he 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 started listening to uh, a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and uh, you know I had always thought of him as like a like a, a 60s guy because he grew up you know listening to the music from the late 60s and early 70s and you know there were songs like uh, Oh Well Parts 1 and 2 by the uh, Fleetwood Mac when it was like the Peter Green band, uh, not not the later popular Fleetwood Mac. And uh, uh, that was kind of his music at the time. But then at a certain point, he just changed over. And uh, all of a sudden, Nick Cave became his main man. Uh, he had a friend uh, 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 named uh, Clement von Frankenstein, who you can find out. He's a, he's a well-known actor in Hollywood. He was a, a member of... Uh, Austrian uh, aristocracy who grew up in England. And the two of them were like, you know, inseparable, uh, uh, you, know, you know, just kind of larger than life figures. Uh, he uh, often uh, 
in the late uh, 80s and in the 90s, he played poker at uh, uh, private games. And some of these, uh, the people that were at the table were some of his students. There were people like Alan Horn, who's like a really big figure in the uh, entertainment business. And, and there were other people, you know, like from Castle Rock Entertainment and stuff. So, uh, so Jerry mixed with a wide circle of people. But I would say that one of the things he also, he really loved to do was to teach. And uh, he had, you know, I mentioned Alan Horn was one example. The baseball player, Bradley Anderson, who hit 40 home runs one season. He was another one of his students. Wow. Uh, but he also had uh, uh, people that, that were just, just regular chess players that were, you know, like 12, 13, 14, 1500. And he would take great uh, uh, joy in seeing them improve, even especially like older adults, you know, he would work with. Uh, he, I remember he, during his career, he, he coached several women that played in U.S. Women's Championships. And it started like in the early 80s. There was a, Pam Ford was one. Another was Baraka Shabazz, who was a young African-American lady. Uh, later on, there was Colette Magruder, Magruder from Los Angeles. But his probably one of his prized students was Vanessa West. And uh, Vanessa played in the... Uh, uh, U.S. Championship when it was a mixed event, uh, I believe at least once, if not a couple times, in the early 2000s. And Jeremy started working <coughs> with her and her sister uh, Melinda. Oh gosh, they must have, they were they seemed like they were really young. I mean, like they might have been like in their early early teens, and uh, probably you know I, this should be checked, but probably they were like you know maybe Vanessa was maybe. 15, 1600. And he gradually got her up to where she was like a very strong expert and just on the verge of becoming a master. And then I think she went to university and she took a break. But but she was clearly master strength because like a year or two later, while she was in college, without too much chess work, she just went out and, and played in a couple terms and did become a master. And he really thought, you know, that she had like tremendous tactical talent and he really enjoyed working with her in some ways i would say that uh he was like she he, he really thought she could go really far but she became interested in writing and 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 uh you know you know both chess and other, and other subjects and and didn't quite realize her full potential but that was like one where jeremy was like if i only could have kept working with her you know she would have become a grandmaster hmm. and uh and that was speaking of grandmaster that was something that jeremy uh uh, he aspired to when he was young, of course, but it didn't quite happen for him. Uh, I mentioned that he started playing when he was 12, which is not an ideal age to start at. And he 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 lived in San Diego, which was a, you know, it was a little bit of a chess desert for its time. Mm -hmm. He didn't really have any teachers when he was young uh, and he didn't get a lot of encouragement. The one exception was there was a, a Canadian <clears throat> international master who played on the Canadian Olympiad tw team twice in the in the 50s and won uh, board medals each time he did. His name was Frank Anderson, and he had uh, settled in San Diego in the early 70s uh, uh, because he had bad health and, you know, living in Canada was really tough winters, and the hope was that moving to sunny San Diego could extend his life. Unfortunately, it didn't extend it by very much, but he was a very kind man and a very, very knowledgeable one, and Jeremy met him a couple times, and he—I wouldn't say Jeremy learned uh, so much, received so much tangible chess information. But what he did was just 
Anderson really encouraged him. He was the only person that really told him that he could become a strong player. And that struck with Jeremy. And then uh, I mentioned that, you know, Jeremy was, was, you know, he was 20 years old when he was, uh, he broke the top 25, top 50 list for the top U.S. juniors. He was 20 years old and he was like 2180. So you can see times have changed, but you can also see that, I mean, Jeremy didn't become a master until he was like, you know, in his early 20s. And then uh, it took him like another couple of years and then he was uh, like 2400. So he made quick progress. And that was because he was living in San Francisco. There were uh, all these people, you know, to study with. Uh, and there were lots and lots of tournaments at the time. And in those days, you didn't need a, a, to inherit a minor fortune to live in San Francisco <laughs> in the area. So everything kind of clicked. He liked the lifestyle and uh, he liked uh, uh, the chess environment. Uh, the early 80s were really rough on him. Uh, after about 80, he, I think he got to about 2550 in about 1982. But then he had this period, kind of like the dark, the dark days of his, of his chess career, where he was living in the Northwest and he was writing these books and, and, and his personal life wasn't great. And his rating dipped down to, to by the time he got to L.A., in like 87, he was back down to 2,200. Okay. I remember, but, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, but within like, in May of 1990, he was 2,597. So he gained that strength back. And I would say his strongest period as a chess player was definitely uh, the early 1990s in Los Angeles. You know, he had won, he tied for first in the U.S. Open in Palo Alto back in the early 80s. And, you know, he had uh, uh, made his IM title finally in 87. I mean, he, he just, like Cyrus, he just didn't have the tournaments to play in. I mean, one thing is, is, is about Jeremy that was quite true is that he, he was really a homebody. He didn't like to travel. And, you know, he didn't like to go to Europe and spend like months at a time, which was what would have been really required of him if he had lived in the... Uh, if he'd really been serious about it, he would have had to base himself in Europe in the in the 80s. Uh, you know, the opportunities that, that are available today, you know, you could just make a GM title just playing tournaments in, in Los Angeles with this thousand GM series. It's 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 much much different time period. So so his peak was definitely uh in the early nineties, and I would say that two of uh two results stand out. One was uh his match against uh uh, Jack Peters. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Jack Peters, he uh, was rated over 2,500 or close to it for over 20 years. He made two GM norms really quick in uh, the late 70s. And then he was playing in a tournament. I remember it well. It was a Philadelphia International. It was in the uh, oh, 79, I want to say. It was it was played in a hotel. and It was, it was played in a hotel in downtown Philly, that was, uh, but we played like underground. There were no windows. It was really, it was near <laughs> Suburban Station. And it was, uh, it was a very unusual playing site to say the least. Uh, and he was playing Michael Wilder in the last round and he wins the game, he's a GM. And he, he drew the game. Now, in retrospect, all he had to do was go to Europe, play a couple of tournaments and he would surely, I mean, have, have made another norm. but. He uh, he was married. He had some you know kids, I believe, at the time. Or uh, he wasn't interested in going to Europe and playing there for extended periods of time. Uh, so uh, what happened? 
Well, he he he's on that very short list. Uh, that once had Igor Ivanov on it, but no longer, thankfully, Igor did get the title at the end of his life. But he's on that short list with probably Victor Frias, uh, Bernard Zuckerman. Uh, there's a handful of them. You know, players that uh, were like rated, uh, Georgi Orlov probably should be on that list too. Players that were rated like, you know, 2,500 plus for, for, for over a decade that didn't get the, uh, the GM title. And... Uh, uh, so Jeremy played this match with Peters and he beat him three and a half a half. And, uh, I mean, one of the, th the thing is when Jeremy was on, he was a very streaky player and, uh, he, uh, realized that, uh, Peters, uh, you know, very, very good with the initiative and a very strong attacking player. And Jeremy managed to play openings. Like he played the black side of the Sveshnikov. He managed to both, uh, surprise, uh, Jack in the openings, and also play, uh, get him into positions that were not his strengths, and uh, or you know he was less strong at because obviously he was a very strong player overall, uh, and so he won that match. But typically that match was not FIDE rated. So Jeremy, if you look at his FIDE rating, it was never, I don't know, maybe like twenty four twenty or twenty four thirty, but but he was considerably stronger than that. Just he just didn't play that many FIDE rated games, and then he played the following year. He played a match against uh, Doug Root. Very, very strong. I am, you know, rated FIDE like 2475 for a long period of time, but who, you know, never pursued becoming grandmaster for professional use, a college professor, you know, uh, probably another person that wasn't so keen on doing extensive traveling uh, when he, in his limited free time. And uh, uh, he, Jeremy was winning that match three and a half, two and a half. And he defanged... Uh, 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 Doug Root's uh, collie system. Doug Root, he he had his own ways of playing the openings, like the French and the collie that he really knew inside and out. And Jeremy had managed to, uh, uh, you know, outplay him. But in the last game of the match, Jeremy had a very good position, but uh, he managed to uh, uh, just uh, not play too well in the concluding phase of the game, and he lost it. So it was a, a drawn match, but it, it was another match that could have been a really great success for him, but it was a good example of how uh, Jeremy, uh, one thing that kind of held him back in his chess career was that he uh, uh, sometimes would have like these, he wasn't diabetic, but he would have like these blood sugar drops where he would like be playing a game and, you know, other people would like eat something at the board to kind of keep their blood sugar level, but he wouldn't. And so if it was a long game and a tense game. Sometimes he would just kind of like, uh, disappear <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happened in that game and also Root played well so so you know fair enough uh but those two matches kind of stand out and he also he he butted heads with cyrus and and uh with uh, uh no Jack and, it uh, wasn't butting heads he i was like his victim i i scored half out of three against him i mean he uh he he crushed me in that that game in the the modern defense game the famous one uh, then he then he squashed me in a King's Indian where he just completely uh, crushed me strategically, and then I I almost beat him. I was white for the first time. I outplayed him almost. I I had a good knight versus bad bishop versus Jeremy's bad bishop, but he uh, he held the draw anyway from a rotten position. 
Like he was a very good endgame player. You know, I mean, I unfortunately I didn't get any of the blood sugar drops. You know, like in my <laughs> games, he, he he beat me too quickly. Maybe I don't know. He was yeah, definitely yeah. GM strength. I mean, he was definitely GM strength. Uh, it, uh, he. I was always kind of a crappy tactician, you know, but like very strong strategically. Jeremy was way better than me strategically. I was scared to death of him strategically. Uh, he he was one of the few people that consistently dismantled me strategically. And I realized in that third game, I have to play him tactically. I can't. I can't hang with them in my normal game. I I, I changed styles. I, I played much more aggressively in the third game and only then did I not get slaughtered, you know? So he, he was absolutely, if, if he beat Jack Peters three and a half half in the early nineties, Jack was a, a monster in the late eighties, early nineties. He, he was incredibly strong. He was definitely the best player in Southern California till, till I would say like 94. I, th I think I became the top player from about 94 to 2002, but Jack was like the best player from like 1978 to, you know, 1993. It, it, Jack had like, his span was decades of the dominant player in, in uh, Los Angeles and Southern California, basically. Hmm. Uh, so if he beat him three and a half, half, I mean, no way an IM could beat Jack in the early 90s uh, with that score. Not a chance. He, he, Jeremy was GM strength. I knew it. I mean, I, I, I knew it from facing him. But his rating was grossly underrated. You know, it, it, it all – I mean, John John was GM strength. He won't admit it, but he was, okay? Uh, John, I don't know what his uh, highest fide is, but – Everybody's fide is suppressed. It, it, at, it, when they lived in our era of, of 80s, 90s, um, it was just impossible to get fide rated games. I, I was beating um, GMs that were like fide 2550 in blitz consistently. Okay. And my rating was about a like I think it reached maximum 2445 or something like that. And I, I knew that everybody was underrated. John grossly underrated Fide, Jeremy, uh, Jack and me all underrated Fide, you know, because, uh, well, I, I would say one thing, Cyrus, that, I mean, part of the problem in the eighties, uh, and, uh, seventies and eighties, and even into the, uh, early nineties is there were even all, maybe throughout the 1990s, there were uh, uh, very few uh, uh, FIDE-rated tournaments. Right. I mean, now the norm, right. the norm is to have the tournaments both FIDE-rated and USCF. Mm -hmm. But I would uh, make the caveat that uh, it isn't. It wasn't just then that it was hard for American players to have a uh, to, to raise their FIDE ratings. I would say that the same is true to some extent now, more than to some extent. Uh, I mean, probably in the in the two thousand to like two thousand. 15 that was a, a normal period but uh post covid uh it's kind of brutal it's not uncommon to uh to see players that were you know that are young players say like 12 years old and they'll be like 2200 uscf and they'll be like 1800 yeah. yeah that's very very common and uh i was in uh st louis uh this past summer and uh uh, 
there was a, a group dinner where a lot of the players who were participating in the event and uh, other people that were doing work on the event uh, uh, were having a meal. And one of the conversations got around to like, uh, like where, where are like normal places to play in, in the world? And Tatev Abrahamian mentioned she had just played a tournament in Spain and how much she enjoyed it. Because when she sat down and she played something that was rated 2200 FIDE, they were actually 2200 strength. Right. They weren't, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't like she sat down and like, well, maybe they were 2400 strength. It wasn't that you, you got what you, you saw. And uh, <clears throat> I think that these uh, real uh, rating imbalances, they're, they're principally confined to the United States, Indian players in particular also, uh, where you have many, many huge numbers of scholastic players and where their ratings are kind of depressed. And uh, it seems to be less the case in many countries in Europe. I'm sure there's still some residual effect there, but it isn't as pronounced. I have two students. Um, both got three IM norms, Ming Lu and Varun Krishnan. Uh, Ming finally made it to IM. He his, uh, but it's the they got the norms before the the ratings. The ratings were the problem. Like Varun has three IM norms, but he's his. I think his rating is like twenty three seventy something. You know, like he, mm-hmm. he's just like a little bit away, and it's really hard to gain FIDE points right now because of these uh, ridiculously underrated juniors playing in these IM tournaments. Uh, but Ming Ming Lu became an IM, I think, at age sixteen. Uh, but Varun, uh, he he went to Harvard, came back, and then he got his uh, third norm. But he's still not there with the rating. I, I expect him to get it. I mean, but uh, mm-hmm. the rating is way harder than the norms now. It's it's just the, it's that's the problem, not the norms. Norms you you just keep trying, 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 and you get one, two, three. You get your three norms. It's but it, the rating is is ridiculously difficult because of all these ringers. Because of, just like John said, the the massively underrated. Uh, scholastic players just totally mess you up. If you if you lose to a guy who's uh, USCF twenty three fifty, okay, or twenty four hundred, but his FIDE rating is nineteen fifty, um, guess what? That's a, you, you got a long way to go then for your for your twenty four hundred minimal rating, right? So it's just very difficult now, and it, it it is hard right now, just like it was back then. For for me, uh, I I became an IM actually on my forty second birthday. Uh, that that's uh, you you gotta call that a late bloomer, okay? If you're <laughs> an IM at age forty two, and I was IM strength for probably you know nearly twenty years before that, right? But it's because I I just I didn't have the um, financial capability of traveling to Europe. We, uh, Nancy and I bought our house in San Diego, and it's like a, it, which is now the, unfortunately, the most expensive city in the U.S. It, it beats L.A., uh, San Francisco, and New York. I mean, that sucks. But this is where we live, right? And uh, so there was no way I could travel around Europe. I, we needed... I needed to do lessons to make the mortgage payments, you know, because Nancy's salary alone just couldn't do it. So we needed both. And we were just barely 
getting by for like 25 years. You know, it was only later that things turned around for us, you know, financially. Um, but it's a, it's a hard life to be a chess player. It's a, it's a pretty, um, I, you know, like I've, I've woken up thinking, why did I do this? Why? I, I wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, like ever since I was a kid and like, why in God's name did I pick chess and writing the two worst (laughs) professions? Like the, the two, like, I remember the CNN survey, like many years back where like, it was, uh, you know, best to worst professions and best was like, you know, a programmer, you know, and, Absolute dead last. I mean, worse than a janitor. Uh, What was dead last? Writer. You know, it was like, (laughs) um, okay, it was like the the highest education level for the lowest pay, uh, the most hours spent working for the lowest pay, the most frustration for the lowest pay. Like, you know, you put your heart out into a book and uh, some guy, uh, you know, the, the who works at Jack in the box uh, gives you a review, you know, I, this book is stupid. I didn't understand it. You know, it's <laughs> like, what, what, just because you didn't understand it doesn't make the book stupid, dude, you know, but uh, it's a, it's a horrible profession writing, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it really is, you know? <laughs> well, I, I would, I would say that Jeremy was a follower of Peter Biasis, uh, uh wisdom. And uh, Peter, uh, who's a good friend of Jeremy's, uh, you know, Canadian, later American uh, grandmaster, uh, who went to work for IBM in the mid-1980s, only did so because it finally meant his his rule. And Peter's rule was, you should never take a job outside of chess unless it pays twice as much. Hmm. Oh, that's easy, John. That's twice as much is super easy you could, well, but you, you know be the like walmart the manager i, I, I would say, i would play devil's advocate for you know uh you know i would say that in some ways now is a better time to be a chess professional than ever before oh yeah by by and, far by far okay but but i would say there there's some caveats uh one thing is uh i mentioned that you know jeremy relied heavily on prize money in the 1970s and the 1980s to, to pay the bills, to keep alive. And one thing to keep in mind is that if you account for both inflation and for the fact that there's so many more strong players playing in open tournaments in the U.S. now, that actually the golden days for, you know, outside of, I'm not talking about like you know, events in St. Louis that are invitational events. I'm just talking about open tournaments in the U.S. The uh, the conditions that existed in the 70s and 80s were actually much better than they are now. Uh, you know, there would be tournaments on the weekend with like, you know, $2,000 for first prize. And there might be like, you know, three or four GMs playing. And that, that you know, if you factor in inflation, it's probably closer to ten thousand dollars right, reverse. Right. You would not see that happening now, and so it helped that you know for players like Nick DeFermi and uh, Joel Benjamin, John Fedorowicz, uh, Igor, uh, Larry Christensen, Igor yeah, Ivanov. I mean, was the main yeah, guy. Yeah, all he those just... guys. Yeah, they would they would they would do reasonably well. You know, especially when they were still single, they could do quite well just playing in uh, open tournaments in the U.S. Uh, Obviously, that's not the case now, but 
what more than compensates for it, of course, is, you know, with the internet, uh, you just have so many more opportunities for teaching Mm -hmm. for podcasts Mm -hmm. or for streaming. Sure. Um, And also you might be right. And I'm sure you would know better than I, Cyrus, as far as what, you know, how book sales go. But uh, I would say that uh, two things there. One is that as, as far as book sales go, you have to consider like, you know, all the variants, you know, the chessable courses, the eBooks, you know, all this, you know, you know, you know, you, you know, if you have a body of work out there after a while, you've got this steady stream of passive income coming in. But, but uh, you're facing you know, tremendous competition. It's the market you, is horribly you are, you are. saturated, you, right? With, with uh, competing that, that free well, you know, stuff, it, it, free material. It is know. a paradox. And it, this is one thing that Jeremy and I discussed quite often was, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, Jeremy really, uh, uh, missed the the opportunities for like individual discovery that were available in chess pre-computer you know being able to do original opening analysis and stuff like that of course you know looking at a lot of that stuff with modern day computers it doesn't stand up but it was really it was really fun it was like a real you know rush Mm -hmm. to just to to do that kind of work and come up with a new move or a new idea and obviously you know today the very top players they they still find all sorts of new things, you know, positions that might have been considered unplayable before, you know, uh, defensive resources, long, you know, you know, material sacrifices for long term initiatives, all these things that they can sort of, you know, very nuanced uh, discoveries. But in the old days, it was definitely a a, a, a different kettle of fish. So that was one thing that Jeremy very much uh, uh missed but on the other hand he thought that that the present was definitely the golden age of chess literature that there were more good books sure. being put out now yeah. that 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 they're you know partly because uh, of of all the tools that were available to authors also partly the fact that there was a wider pool of potential authors uh you know contributing uh and and also just the fact that that the standards higher, so there's the gatekeepers don't let like bad books get published for the most part, and so he really enjoyed that. And although his last tournament was in the late 1990s, around 2000, he still avidly followed the game, and uh, he uh, did you know book he would read books and he would use new books when teaching his students and. Uh, uh, you know, he he thought it was it was a, a golden time. So you 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 know better than I, Cyrus. You're right in the and in the in the pits. You know, you know, uh, <laughs> fighting it out with all the other chess authors right, for sales. Right. Uh, uh, but but I still think that today that you know if you're a, a, a young uh, chess young person and you're thinking of becoming a professional chess player, it's, it's easier. There are a lot. Yeah. Of, if it's something you really enjoy doing, right. if it's something that really gives you a lot of pleasure. Then I think that uh, it's still a very viable sure. uh, option. Sure. It, it, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, possibilities out there, and uh, uh, you know, I think follow your passion. If Jeremy, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, 
and there's things to learn, obviously, from Jeremy's approach to business, even though the landscape has changed and you can't do the exact same thing. I mean, he was just such an innovative thinker in the the Fred Wilson interview that listeners will be able to hear. It was at the time that he was writing Selman's Endgame course. And he just, you know, he talks about how he's been writing it for years. You know, he's not sure when he's going to finish, but he basically said he wasn't happy with the other Endgame book that he had collaborated on. I think it was called Essential Endings. But he also just said, there's there's never been anything like this. Um, so I just think that this idea of a, a creative, and obviously, you know, bore fruit. I mean, it's my favorite. It's a, the Ben Game book I always recommend just because it's the, the fact that it addresses different levels um, and is in such a readable style um, was far ahead of its time and still pretty unique in the marketplace. Um, so just wanted to throw that in, but I'm also, and Cyrus, we'll, we'll get back to you, but I'm also curious if either of you had a chance in recent years, I mean, you've talked about what the landscape is like now, but I'd love to hear if, if you guys to discuss with Jeremy, what he thought of the overall chess boom, but go ahead and finish your thought. If you, if you prefer first, uh, Cyrus, I just wanted to say that if, if Jeremy wanted to, I, I think he could have quite easily been the top streamer in the world today yeah. you know i mean it, it just like over the last five years let's say he wasn't interested i think in streaming but he he was super entertaining and like like john said he was one of the best lecturers i've ever seen you know he was he was just completely entertaining you he he grabbed the audience um he just had stage presence okay um, but uh, he would have been. I think he could beat the uh, Gotham Chess and and Hikaru today if he wow. if he was alive and he wanted to stream. He within one year he'd be the top streamer in the world. I, I really think so. He he would he would have he had a legion of fans already with his books, and once you saw one stream of his, it, you'd you'd be hooked. That would be it, right? That would be it. You know, like he he would beat uh, um, I I don't know the Gadmater. I I think he uh, would Gadmater, beat yeah <laughs> yeah a, a Gadmater, uh, Hikaru, and uh, Gotham Chess. I and the Botez sisters. Okay, I think maybe not them. Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but he I I really think he would be the top streamer in the world if he wanted to. He just wasn't interested. It's it's like that too. I've been offered uh, streaming. Now I wouldn't be the top streamer in the world if I if I did it. But I I've never been interested in streaming. I don't know why, but it just never appealed to me. I like I like to write, you know. But uh, Jeremy, I think, would have taken it by storm. Now I, I know people would disagree, maybe, but I I think John would agree with me that he might be the top streamer in the world today. But of course, it's unprovable, you know. It's Right. I would say that uh, uh, he certainly had the potential to be a, a great streamer. I'm judging from all of his uh, uh, lecturing. But one thing I'll say for those streamers is that, uh, uh, <clears throat> yes, for a few of them, it's uh, incredibly lucrative, but it's also uh, work. It's work like with, uh, <clears throat> with uh, all letters capitalized. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I would say that, uh, you know, to, to do those stream you know you have to stream like you know like pretty much like every day every day mm -hmm. you know it's uh it's a grind uh so i'm not sure that he would have enjoyed doing that sort of thing i mean that's you know that that's you know 
that's the thing. Own. He wasn't uh, interested. He just I, he wouldn't have been interested. Yeah, I, no. ju- I was just saying if he wanted to, he could he right. could have reached the top yeah, in streaming, could. I think, you know. Right. right. Because I compare him, you know, like I, I compare him with the, the, the streamers are the top streamers are entertaining, but not as much as Jeremy. And uh, he just he had something they uh, they don't have. He had that clarity which came through in the reassess book, he could reach the 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 biggest audience, which is like nine hundred to twelve hundred. If if he went for that audience, nine hundred to fourteen hundred, nine hundred to twelve hundred, uh, that that's the biggest audience there is in chess. If you grab that audience, that's by far bigger than uh, fourteen hundred to two thousand. So, yeah. John, did you hear, did Jeremy, did you guys ever discuss the chess boom? Like the. Well, you know, uh, you know, Jeremy, I think as some of, you, of your listeners may know, he uh, uh, suffered from a, uh, uh, a serious illness for the last, uh, I would say, roughly eight years of his life. And uh, it's the same uh, condition that Bruce Willis has, if, 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 if people want to look it up. But essentially what it did is it, it, uh, it, it started to uh, rob him of his memory. And at first it was very subtle, but uh, for, uh, for Jeremy, he could notice it. You know, I mean, you know, because of the things that he did, you know, his lecturing and his writing. And at first he thought it might be just, a, you know, you get older, you know, your memory's not quite as sharp, but, but it got worse. And the first thing that went is he, he could no longer do lectures because he just couldn't find the words, you know, at some point. And uh, and then it started to uh, creep into, you know, he used to like to play Blitz with his, uh, with Tony Sadie in particular would come by and they would they would have at it, you know, and, uh, you know. Um, and then finally uh, it, it got to where, you know, it started to affect his, 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 uh, his writing ability. And it was... Uh, very insidious disease that he uh, uh, he he dealt with uh, in a very dignified fashion, and his wife really you know uh, stood by him all the way, and, and his friends, uh, a lot, uh, several of his students uh, 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 really really helped out, and uh, so by the time of the uh, the pandemic, you know he, you know he appreciated watching the Queen's Gambit and. Uh, and he could still follow the chess scene, and he was impressed, you know, with uh, all the rising young talents and uh, you know strong young Indian players in particular. You know, uh, he he was still following the action until maybe the, about the last year, year and a half, and then after that, it was a little, you know, he still kind of would watch it. I remember one of the things he liked to do, like in the last six months of his life, that was kind of uh, well, we did it, we we did it for like maybe about the last years. I would play blitz on uh, on Lee Chess, and then he would watch and he would kibitz, and uh, don't tell him anybody at Lee Chess. <laughs> no, I'm mm-hmm. just kidding. But uh, it, it didn't really matter too much. But then later on, he just liked to watch. He couldn't play himself, but he just liked to to see the pieces move. And uh, even as sadly a blitz player that, as I am, and that's one thing I should mention. I should interject. Jeremy was like Cyrus. I would say both of them were much better blitz players than they were over mm-hmm. the board. And Jeremy, he was, a, he could be a real beast. Uh, I mean, he, I could think of like a couple dozen grandmasters he beat at Blitz. 
whereas maybe it was only like a dozen or two over the board. Uh, so he, you know, when they had Walter Brown's uh, uh, Blitz Chess Association and they had those ratings, I remember he was like over 2,600 and, you know, he was, uh, which put him in the top 100 in the world. And, uh, uh, but he was, he was a very fine Blitz player. I think that, you know, he felt more comfortable there in some ways in showing, you know, his talent when he was playing against stronger players. He didn't have his, you know, he didn't regularly play against top grandmasters one-on-one -on -one over the board that often, but playing them in blitz, he could just relax and just play and, and, and show more of his real strength uh, and, and, and did quite well at that. Uh, and he, he loved to play blitz. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, one other thing I should mention about Jeremy that he shares with Cyrus beside, you know, besides both being excellent blitz players, is they're both excellent cooks. Hmm. And Jeremy <laughs> loved to cook for his friends. I didn't know and, that. <laughs> uh, yes, he, uh, in the late 1970s, he moved to England. And then, and, and his mother was English, I should mention, by the way. Uh, and then, and after he was there for maybe about a half a year, he came back to the U.S., but he didn't come back to the Bay Area. He came back to Chicago. And uh, it was for personal reasons. And while he was in Chicago, he ran into... Uh, a noted backgammon player and and, and, a, and a chess rated expert, Nick Ballard, and he became they 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 became uh, good friends. I think they knew each other from the Bay Area. But Ballard was doing like a trading on uh, you know financial trading, and he was doing quite well at the time. And he wanted somebody to sort of take care of his daily affairs, so he appointed Jeremy to be his chef. <laughs> so Jeremy, I think that's the only job I know. Two jobs Jeremy had where he was not a chess player, and one of them. <laughs> was as the chef for Nick Ballard. And the other one was about 84 or so. He was living in Eugene, Oregon. And he, as I mentioned, this was kind of a dark period for him. And he was just kind of living hand to mouth. And uh, he was churning out those chest digest uh, uh, books. But he still was having trouble making, the, the, making everything work out in the end. So what he did is he answered a job and the job was to work at Genesis Juice Company, which still exists in Eugene. I think it's owned by a different company now. And they made like fresh squeezed juices and smoothies. And, and Jeremy thought, what a great job to have. I can, I can produce a good product for people they'll enjoy. I'll really enjoy sampling the product while I'm working, <laughs> working there. And it'll be just a win-win, right? Well, there's one problem. The problem was the Genesis Juice, the juicers, they, they, they had to get up like and be at work at like, you know, 4.35 in the morning. And Jeremy, those hours sounded right, but the wrong order. <laughs> they should be in the afternoon, not in the morning. And, bedtime, uh, yeah. Yeah, Jeremy, some of his most productive period of the day was like, you know, at like one o'clock at night. He, that would, you know, he'd be doing his writing or his, you know, his, his studying. You know, he, 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 liked, uh, he liked that quiet time. And uh, so the Genesis Juice Company job, I'm afraid, it only lasted a couple of days. <laughs> but that's the complete opposite of me. I, I generally wake up around 3.30 a.m. and I do my writing 
same as Jeremy, but but after I've gone to right, bed, same hours. Well, you, you, you could have meant for you could have meant for breakfast for you and exactly, uh, exactly. dinner for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Um, John, I have one important question. So he wrote, I have around 6,000 chess books. However, it took up too much space. So I get around, I got rid of around 1,500 of them. Parenthetically, I was insane. I miss them now. I shipped another 1,500 chess books to my house in Tokyo, have another 1,000 in my West Hollywood house, and have another 2,000 in storage. So that's from one of his chess.com columns. John, any discussion yet of uh, the future of those chess books? Well, I think a, a lot of those books, a lot more of them made their way to Japan. When he wrote that, I think there's a large number of, of, of books in Japan, and that's something that uh, uh, that uh, Gwen will have to deal with, you know, in the future. I mean, obviously now it's, it's still too soon, I think, way too soon. Uh, but uh, Jeremy really loved it in Japan, and uh, uh, it was a, a quiet place they had. It was outside of Tokyo about an hour, and uh, it was in the countryside. And Jeremy, in many ways, he's very much like uh, Yasser Sarawan in that both of them could be anywhere in the world, but they were very much homebodies. So as long as they had, like, you know, their laptop, you know, they had or a computer, and they had a strong internet connection, and they had a, uh, their, their chess library with them, they would be at home. And uh, so uh, uh, I do know that Jeremy... Uh, although he, as I mentioned, uh, he really felt that like the greatest chess books, a lot of them were the the most recent chess books, uh, for the reasons I alluded to earlier. That you know, authors have more more tools to write on, write with, uh, that aid their task. You know, you know, no thumbing through like you know a dozen books to find a single game. You just you know click on a, on one keystroke and you have it in your hand, and and also, there's just so many good authors from all around the world. You know, uh, you know, many people that wouldn't have had the opportunity to find a publisher 20 years ago can readily do so now. Uh, having said all that, he did have there was a lot of older books that he really loved. I remember one series, the two volume hardbacks uh, by uh, Steckman on Petrosian. There was one that was blue and one was red. There were really big, thick books. He, Petrosian was one of his favorite players. That was one of his favorite books. He also liked uh, a lot of the old uh, Bell uh, uh, hardback, you know, game collections with dust jackets on, you know, Tall and Petrosian and Irva and you know, all these different, you know, great players of the past. You know, I think part of that was kind of just, you know, there's the books you grow up with when you're younger, because, I mean, it's it's a tricky question with those older books. A lot of times, the general impression of what they write could be still quite valuable, you know, explaining the ideas of what was happening. But the concrete variations might not be quite so precise. That's about the best you can hope for. Right. The worst, of course, is they're annotating a game in which, uh, you know, player X won, but it turns out player Y was winning most of the right. game. But it isn't so clear. Uh, I annotated uh, uh, the game between Jeremy and uh, Cyrus uh, that they played in, uh, I think it was 1987, I want to say, that the, what Jeremy chose as his favorite game of all time. And it, it's, the, it's a good example of that in the sense that Jeremy's notes that he wrote on the game uh, were uh, in, in, in 
the overall uh, quite quite accurate, uh, you know, kind of summing things up. But it turns out that uh, he thought strategically at, by like move fifteen, he was like he right. was really much really in the driver's seat, and that that if he played correctly from then on, that all would you know be come to a just conclusion. But in fact, it turns out there was uh, a few points where Cyrus could have, you know, with were not easy to find, but 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 there were tactical shots or ideas that could have saved him uh, in the position. Uh, I think that's inevitable these days. I think that you know games that were annotated, you know, five years ago, in five years hence, will be vulnerable to improvements mm. like that. Uh, I think that readers have to sort of take that into account. Uh, I think that uh, for most readers, what's important is that uh, the author explains what's happening and and puts it into some uh, fashion that makes it accessible to the reader to understand. I mean, having said that, I think also you can't just like write with words. You also have some well-chosen concrete lines that back it up with the caveat you know that you may get overruled <laughs> in the future. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the explanations in books are far more important than the lines uh, because the, the next generation of computers, which will be chess engines that are stronger, always refute your old analysis. So it's like whatever analysis you put will always be wrong in the future because there'll be always an improvement that the new generation will be like a hundred points stronger, 50, even 50 points stronger. Um, right. I, I talked to Jeremy about that. I, I told him that, uh, I, I don't really think that analysis matters, you know, like, it, I, I mean, yes, it matters. You can't put garbage, you know, but whatever you put will be altered. It, it, it's completely temporary. It's th that's the if you look at Bodvinik's uh, analysis of of his games, you know, no computers or even Fisher's, you know, from sixty memorable games. There are big holes, you know. I I remember one game. I I was um, uh, and it, I I was a syndicated columnist for uh, Copley News Service uh, th through the eighties, uh, and I remember annotating one of the uh, Karpov-Kasparov World Championship match games. And uh, I remember overlooking a mate in two, and I got this flood of like, you know, like, oh, crap. You know, like, right. you can uh, – there was a, a recent chessable course where a, a grandmaster, a very strong one, overlooked a mate in one with com – using computers, you <laughs> know. It's very easy to miss something, you know. Like, it, it's super easy to miss uh, and without computers, you're you're just going to make all sorts of mistakes. I I just think analysis, uh, especially in the pre-computer days, was not important. It, all that mattered was verbal explanations. Those still hold for today. Those still, uh, I mean, the assessments can be wrong based on concrete analysis. But it's it's really why you're buying the chess book is the verbal explanations the overall view is more important than the details it yeah. is is well, just my view and jeremy's view too he thought the same because we talked yeah, about yeah and this, i know he was know? he was sometimes criticized for of course 
the analysis not holding up to modern standards, but nobody's I mean, did. No, nobody's did. Yeah, you know, Bob Phoenix didn't. You know, right. yeah. well, there, there's also the other issue that uh, uh, what is actually there, there's absolute truth with the engine, and then there's what's actually attainable for a human playing right. the exactly. the board, exactly. and they can be quite different. And I remember once I mentioned to Jeremy that uh, a good example of that was. In, in 2013, in Antalya, Turkey, there was the World Team Championship. And Ray Robson was playing black against Nikita Vityagov, who at the time was playing for Russia. Now he plays for England. And uh, Vityagov uh, answered uh, Ray. It was, a, it was a martial variation of the Queen's Gambit declined, you know, where, where it's a semi-Slav and white plays E4, and black captures an e4 and white takes with the knight and they go bishop b4 check and bishop d2 and queen takes d4 and it's so it's this very sharp line where white sacrifices a pawn uh for the initiative and both players were well versed in the theory as it existed at the time and and by maybe like move 15 or so uh they were still in theory almost to move 20 maybe they were still in theory and then they started to slow down. And the play became very critical, where like every move really weighed heavily. And at a certain point, Ray embarked on a sequence of moves that was objectively wrong, but practically brilliant. Because at a certain point, Vichigov realized the position was really critical, and he thought for like a half an hour. And in that position, there were like, maybe like three or four candidate moves for him. One won, and every other move lost. But the move that won, it was incredibly hard to find. It was like a several move sequence. And here was a guy who was rated, you know, well over 2,700 at the time, playing in a very important tournament in a, in a team competition where his responsibility, like, was even on a higher level than maybe as an individual player. So he's fully motivated. And he, his uh, uh, chess intuition probably told him the position was absolutely critical and that, that, you know, he should look for a knockout blow. And yet he couldn't find it. Well, sometimes I'll see annotations and maybe there's a player's like, you know, rated like, say, 1600. And they could be in a position like that. And then they miss that move and they say, well, I was winning. Right. <laughs> Were they really winning? <laughs> I <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> Well, everybody said, you know, well, I was winning uh, when they played Tall, right, in his heyday. Yeah, everybody, right. especially everybody now. winning yeah. against Tall. If you, if you actually yeah. annotate his games, you see, oh, my God, he's like losing every game he ever won. You know, his <laughs> sacrifices yeah. were so fishy. But it was exactly as John described. Like he made people find only moves that they couldn't find. They just couldn't find. It would be like a a library where there's a piece of information you need. And if you find it, it's the secret of immortality, but it's a 10,000 book library and it's somewhere in there. They can't find it. Where is it? Right. And so that's how that's some people just play that way all the time and it works. You, you don't have to be objectively correct when you play chess. It's a, it's a myth, a complete myth that, you know, uh, correct play wins. I mean, that that's like saying, uh, you know, 
uh, only people who are morally upright do well in the world. No, there's tons of crooks that do great in the world because they, yeah. they swindle, they trick, they they confuse, and they uh, on their way to success. And they it works the same way in chess. Um, well, this has been amazing. As as we wrap up, I'm can't help but ask i'm curious if either of you guys have like greatest hit type Silman stories whether it's from your personal interactions with him um or or a story that he liked to tell that that maybe as you guys have mentioned because he wasn't as public facing towards the end that that maybe some people haven't heard cyrus do you want to start off um yeah i i i don't know if i can even tell this, uh, but it, it's, it's an important yeah, story. That's the problem with a lot of Jeremy's stories. They may not That's be appropriate. The your... That's the big problem. Yes. I, I came up, I, I came um, to a tournament once with Nancy and my then uh, one year old son, Tim, uh, in about 1992, and Jeremy was there. And uh, I'm Indian and Nancy's uh, German, okay? And my son, Tim, uh, looks like, uh, you know, like a total Nordic guy, like totally looks like Nancy. Right. And Jeremy took a look at the baby and I'm said, and he said, I I'm so sorry that Nancy cheated on you with a, with a white guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's the first thing he said when he saw my son, But I've got a hundred of in. I, I've got at least a hundred inappropriate Jeremy stories, but that's the only one I'll tell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, John. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's the thing. I'm just wondering, you know, which stories I could tell. You know, I would say this. The thing about Jeremy was that, uh, 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 you know, we've kind of touched on the on on his. Uh, Jeremy is is a chess player and. Uh, Certainly, he he could be, uh, you know, his sense of humor and uh, uh, his, uh, uh, you know, ability to entertain were were endless. But as a a person, he was, uh, he could be incredibly kind and generous. And uh, he always kind of, uh, uh, he loved cats, you know, uh, and uh, he loved animals in general and and considered that... uh, they were like superior to human beings on many occasions, that. and so uh, he. Uh, uh, it was interesting, you know. He did not have an easy childhood. Uh, he uh, was raised in a. His father was like a military contractor. They traveled often, so you know, by definition, that you know, oftentimes makes it kind of hard to fit in. Uh, even by the time he settled in, uh, I think he lived in Chula Vista when he was young, a suburb of San Diego, and. He was there uh, from maybe he arrived like when he was about eight or nine years old and until he uh, entered the military uh, in, uh, oh gosh, in the, maybe when he graduated from high school in the early 70s. And uh, it was not an easy time period for him. Uh, he did not have an easy home life. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why he... Uh, uh, you know, he was not drafted, uh, you know, the, I think, I don't even know if the, he was born in 54, the draft might have still been in effect, but he actually volunteered to serve in the U.S. Army, and he didn't have, have a long uh, uh, career as a soldier, uh, uh, you know, he, he 
got an honorable discharge and everything. But I think in part because uh, uh, he was, you know, he would not have, you know, like, well, let's say there's a, there's a hill that has to be taken. And uh, there's maybe uh, a good chance that if you charge directly up the hill, there'll be about a 95% casualty rate. But if you go around a two-mile detour and you come up the back end, casualty rate will be like 5%. But it'll take like two hours longer. And uh, uh, But that might not be the overall picture, not may not square with that. But Jeremy would have always been the person who would have gone the extra two hours around to avoid this. So he didn't make him the best soldier, shall we say, uh, you know, perhaps. He first uh, listed but, the imbalances. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Paul Whitehead, you know, mentioning to me how important uh, Jeremy was when uh, uh, a figure, like a big brother figure he was when he was young. And uh, I think that for a lot of people uh, meeting Jeremy, he was always a very good listener and he's always very sympathetic and he's always very uh, non-judgmental. Uh, those are traits that I think are very much part of who he was as a person. Uh yeah, he really, he had a real love for life. And, uh, uh, you know, he he was, he reminded me in some ways of my father. My father was a city manager, and then later he was the director of the Philadelphia Zoo. And in public, he had this really uh, kind of larger-than-life uh, persona where, you know, he's really good at speaking to large groups, and he could be, you know, really, you know, he could ad-lib, you know. but But at his heart, he was a very private person, and I think that that was the case with Jeremy as well. There's nothing he really enjoyed more than being at home and being with his wife, Gwen, and being with uh, his cat and studying chess and uh, just hanging out and taking it easy and, and teaching his students. Yeah, well, that came across. And uh, thanks for joining us. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, both of you. I mean, it's... It's been wonderful to to feel like I know him better now, uh, thanks to thanks to hearing all of these stories. Thank you, Ben, for having us. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, of course. Oh, uh, before we say goodbye, um, are either of you guys working on anything you'd like to mention? <laughs> if we can make a hard left, or uh, should we just uh, say goodbye yeah. for this time? Um, I have one more story, one more Jeremy okay. story. Okay, it, it was uh, it, it was the day after the. Uh, 2016 election and Jeremy emailed me and he said, uh, I, I really wish a giant meteor would, would just crash into the earth and destroy every, every living being. And then like, I, I, okay, I, I, I get it. You didn't like, the, <laughs> you didn't like the result. And then I got a, another email, uh, few few minutes later he said no wait that would hurt the animals i i don't want that to happen <laughs> that's a typical well, jeremy <laughs> response yeah <laughs> i would say that one thing that, that might surprise people about jeremy is that uh you know he lived you know most of his life in uh, southern california uh uh you know and certainly he uh he was definitely a live and let live kind of guy, but he had friends from all walks of life. Uh, one of his best friends was uh, 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 Stephen Barshop. He was a, a former prosecutor in for the city of Los Angeles. He had another guy, uh, Big Tony, who's uh, now like a, uh, uh, I think he's like a sheriff somewhere in Texas. He uh, 
uh, was a, like a, a weightlifter and bodybuilder guy before. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he had friends in the, in the entertainment industry and in the music industry. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he, a hard guy to pin down in a certain way. You know, people might think that they, they knew him and then they probably did very well on a certain level, but, but on others, not so. He was a multi-dimensional guy. He really was. He, he, uh, you can't, you can't pin him down with, I mean, maybe the two words never boring, but he, he was more, you know, he was more, he, he was just a, a one of a kind. You, you can't, uh, he, he, I'm, I'm never going to meet anyone like him again. I know that, you know, it's just, he was a total original. Yeah. yeah, and he he also he really looked after his friends from the old days. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, John Grief and uh, Dennis Waterman, the guys that sort of took him in in uh, uh, the fall of '73 when he, uh, uh, you know, moved to the Bay Area to San Francisco for the first time. Uh, they had their struggles, financial and health wise, later in life, and he was always trying to help them as much as he could. So he was definitely a good soul and. Uh, I'll miss him. He was. He 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 had a very. Uh, he had an innate kindness in him, despite the. Um, he could be raunchy. He could be, uh, you know, like uh, inappropriate. But behind it, he was just very kind. You could you could feel it all the time. And he um, he stuck. It, it's true. He stuck up for his friends. One time, um, okay, another story. Uh, one time, a guy gave one of my books a bad review, like a horrible review. Uh, and then, like, I, I looked again and was like, "What the hell, Jeremy?" Uh, like, uh, he gave he gave the book like a, a, my book a, a really great review, and uh, then he started attacking the guy who gave my book a bad review. I went, "What the hell?" You know, and he created this massive war, right? I mean, it's massive, massive war. But he stuck up for his friends. He cared about people, and he really loved his friends. And he, uh, he you know, that's a that's a very brave thing to do because what he's doing is. That guy who gave my book a bad review may have loved Jeremy's books, right? But now Jeremy is his enemy, right? Because the guy, right. Jeremy, just like bashed him over the head. And not just him, but like he he named the people that get, that uh, – because what happened was it was like a piling on, you know, where one guy gives a bad review and then they – then the others get brave enough to join in and uh, he just kicked the crap out of them. Like – and uh, he – he just dismantled them in in his review, and I was I was truly touched because um, that was an incredibly brave thing to do. You know, it it was a really yeah. brave thing to do. It was like a a big brother uh, standing up for your little brother. You know, uh, against the bullies is what he did. Yeah, I don't think Jeremy. You know, he didn't care too much about what would happen in situations right, like that. Right. Because he, if you look at his, he wrote for chess.com for, uh, uh, for, for years. And uh, uh, before chess.com was really big the way it is now, where it's like, you know, hmm. 10 ton gorilla. And uh, yeah, he would, uh, you know, in, in, invariably, if you, if you are reaching a very large audience, you know, you get trolls. You yeah, you're going to get your trolls. Yeah, right? yeah. So it kind of goes with the territory. Yeah. 
but he would hit the trolls back. Usually, I just meet trolls with dead silence, cold silence, you know, and uh, no, not Jeremy. <laughs> you know, he would like, he would go after the troll and he was so eloquent that he, you know, he just like would kick the troll's teeth in, you know, and I admired <laughs> that too. I, that took courage, you know. It may not have been wise because it 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 encourages more trolls, but like it he he was a courageous guy. He really was. Yeah. All right. Well, a good night. Good note to end on. You guys are making me uh making me tear up, and I didn't even know the guy personally. So uh, I guess in that sense, a job well done and a, a life well lived. Um, it was so. So thanks again, guys. Re really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure uh, everyone still with us uh, has, has learned a lot about uh, I.M. Soman's profound legacy. So thank you, Cyrus. And thank you, John. Bye-bye. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.